So God, uh, when I was preparing, my thought was I'm not qualified. And, and to deliver this message that I know is important, that I know is on your heart for us, um, to give it with clarity. In fact, I can say that's pretty much true every week. So I would ask God that your spirit would help each of us hear from you this morning the nudge that we need, the aha moment that we need from you so that we don't just learn more about Scripture, although that's important, but we learn from you. And our hearts are shaped, our lives are realigned a little bit. Um, even if it bothers us, God, show us. Nudge us. Reveal to us. In Christ's name, amen. So I was just remembered when a uh, host said, Hey, Doug, um, you didn't tell us that we're going to have all these extra people today and, and, and that we're going to have a bump. And so they're a little bit concerned about next hour programs. So not, if you're a note taker, take your notes. But if you're just going to go, hey, I'll, I throw this away at home and don't even look at it. Um, if you can just turn it into the welcome desk on your way out, then they'll have some for next hour. And those people won't even know it's used. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> It'll be fine. All right, so we're in the series called Kryptonite. I need to catch everybody up on where we've been. We started the series with a message that was about who we really are. And, and we're really like superheroes. This isn't our normal getup for our stage, right? This is, this is saying that, hey, God has invited us to be super involved and heroic in this world. And everybody's invited to that. That's what you were created for and made for. And, you've been, and, and, and to, to engage in that, we have to do those three things that every superhero has to do in all the movies, right? We have to figure out who we really are, our identity, right? And we said, the scripture says that we're children of God. We may not know it. We may not have embraced it. We may not have received it yet. But we are called and invited to this relationship where we get to call him dad. And then secondly, we've all been gifted, everybody in the room. No matter what your teacher told you, parents teach you, your older brothers who told me a lot of rotten stuff, right, about me, you're gifted. You're gifted. You have abilities. You have a wiring that no one else has for the specific purposes. It's not just one, I don't think. Purposes that God has for you in your life. You're born at the right time in the right place to accomplish everything God wants to accomplish in your life. Right? And then the last one is, you need a great cause. You need, you need something to devote your life. You know who you are? I'm a child of God. And I'm gifted in a building, but how am I going to leverage all that? Where am I going to put it? And, and we were talking about everyone needs that. Every superhero needs that. And we need it too. And, and where I said I landed was, because when I read scripture, is to please and to honor God. And that can take me from, from birth to, to death. With my last breath, I can still be honoring God. Some people think that, hey, Doug, you know, crosswinds, you help start the church, you're the founding pastor, so your life purpose must be crosswinds. It's not. This is an interim gig, right? There's, there's going to come a day when I'm not the pastor anymore. Quit waiting for it. Just hang with me, all right? <laughs> Hopes are way high in the room. Wait, is this his resignation speech? This is awesome. No, I'm not too bad and uh but there will come a day when you guys either give me the boot or i walk out willingly right it's one of those two and then there'll be a period of time where i don't know what i'm going to do right whatever god leads me into and then there'll be a final breath and and my purpose needs to cover all of that so my purpose is to please and honor god this just happens to be the way i'm doing it now 
what God has called me to now, but it, it'll continue. So that was, that was it. We need to know our identity, our gifts and purposes, and we need a cause that's great. And, and, and that's the, the foundation of this whole series. If you don't know those three things, that's where you need to do some active thinking, praying, working on. Okay. Now, the next week and all the weeks following, we're saying, what can ruin that? Right? What, what kinds of things do we face that can suck away our power, suck away our identity, and destroy our ability to be involved in the things God wants us to be, be the people of God that we're called to be? And we said it's kind of like kryptonite for Superman, right? That, that when Superman is near kryptonite, and every, all the heroes had their own individual weaknesses, but for Superman it was kryptonite, he, it would suck him dry. And he couldn't be Superman. He would kind of wilt under it. He couldn't be the person that he was made to be. And yes, I know he's fictional, just so we're all clear. But, but we can kind of just lean into the Superman thinking, right? Now, Superman, today's kryptonite is called dabbling, but to, and it's a touchy one, right? But let me just take you to the whole superhero thing again and remind you that Superman, if you think about all, this, all the superheroes, I got to tell you, the one that I think is the most wholesome and, and the biggest of them all is definitely Superman, right? We can argue about that later, and it will be a very engaging, exciting conversation, right? <laughs> but Superman came along in like 1939, and there was a slogan that he, you know, was given. It was called Truth, Justice, and the American Way. Isn't there something just wholesome about that? And, and it's not like the American way, like, America's the best. It's not that. It's just he was an American. I mean, he was, so he said, hey, this, and at the time, we really needed that national identity. So, but truth and justice, I wish I would have had mercy up there too, and mercy, I would add, and the American way, right? And everything, you never saw Superman have a bad moment, right? An impure moment. You didn't see him sin or consider temptation. It was like, I'm Superman, right? Truth, justice, the American way. And we just knew he was worthy of respect. He was like a Boy Scout without a uniform. I mean, he had just, well, he had a special uniform, didn't he? Right? He was, he was Superman. And I started thinking about this a little bit, and I thought, what if the superheroes started to do stuff that didn't look so super? Right? And I actually went online, I found some pictures, and I hope this isn't a trigger for anybody, so bear with me. Um, but <laughs> you know, I showed this picture last night. And I thought, isn't that disturbing? First of all, he's underage. Secondly, uh, my, Lord, my wife looked at it and she goes, what was he doing? Like, was he picking his nose? I go, no, that would just... Picking his nose would be embarrassing. But he was doing, he was smoking, right? At least he was smoking, right? And I thought, I found another one and just go, never. It's never going to happen. It should never happen. And it, I look at that picture and I, I cringe a little bit. No, Superman, don't do that. Never do this, Superman. <laughs> Right? And, he, and he's right. He never said he was perfect. I know. Right? And I thought, if they did these things, it would change their names to like Superman to Super Disturbing Man. <laughs> did you feel that cringe when you saw it? Because right. when we do the same kinds of things as believers and followers of Christ, there's a cringe. There's a disturbance. Right? And that's what we're going to be talking about today because as we look at um, biblical heroes, right, we find the exact same thing takes place. See, all the, all the superheroes we know are fiction, but the biblical heroes are true people, true accounts of their lives. And 
They're incredibly transparent in Scripture about the stuff they were dealing with. So we've been looking at David over the last few weeks. He keeps coming up in our conversation because he was so heroic as a teenager. Remember, you know, last week we talked, we read through the passage where he was a shepherd and he was he took care of his sheep and he fought the lion and he fought the bear, protected his sheep, and he did those things successfully, and he knew it wasn't about him. He said, it was because God has protected me that God is with me, and that's why I can face this giant Goliath, right? And and, and last week, someone took me aside because you guys know so much stuff. It's amazing. Took me aside and said, hey, Doug, just so you know, that picture isn't quite accurate. (laughs) I go, well, it's not a photo, you know? (laughs) 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 And they go... No, no, you go, so that's a Roman spear, you know, it wouldn't be a Philistine type of fear. I'm going, oh, gone. And they said, because see how it's tapered, right, and and narrow? And when they throw it, it lands, and it's supposed to break off into the victim and stay with them until their last breath, right? And so I'm like, wow, you know a lot about spears. (laughs) And um, and so, but I just wanted to tell you, you know, we need to own up to these inaccuracies, and that's one of them. (laughs) uh, But the point is not lost, right? That David took on Goliath, who really was a giant of a man, who was mocking God before the Israelites and before the Philistines, mocking the God of Israel. And David, as a teenager, couldn't take it, and he had to trust in God. Because of his prior experience with God, he stood up and said, I'll fight him. And incredibly, they let him. (laughs) Okay, David, go ahead. And he takes a sling, and and he kills Goliath, right? And he becomes instantly a what? Absolutely. He's a hero. Not just because he took on Goliath, but he's a hero of faith and battle. And that was David's thing. He always had this relationship with God. He was a great warrior. Israel became a real united kingdom, took great strides and and fortified and strong, and all those things went really, really well. And one day, David becomes the king, and under him, everything's prospering. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if, you, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've read your Bibles, if you've heard the story before, just bear with me. I know you have, but we're going to go through it again just so you know it, right? And here's what it says, 2 Samuel 11. This is David, this is, David's growing up, he's king, and everything's going great. And he sa- it says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, there should be some ominous music playing in the background right now. David sent Joab in the Israel army to fight the Ammonites. You hear what it says? The, the author, Samuel, saying, when kings normally are supposed to go with their armies to war in the spring. David sent the army. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And trust me, if you were Jewish and you were reading this, you're, whoa, that's a little cringy. That's not where he's supposed to be at that moment. And it goes on. It says, late one afternoon, after his midday rest, right, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. And it's, it's interesting. I, I was wrestling with this a little bit because I'm going to be reading into the text a little bit, and you're going to know when I am because I'm going to go what I think was going on sometimes or what might be going on sometimes, but the text doesn't say it exactly. But when I read that someone's taking a midday rest, right, and he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, in Every clinical psychologist would go, hmm, I wonder if David had a little depression going on. You know, can't get out of bed. He's not doing his job. Everything's kind of a little bit of a struggle, and he goes up and he walks in the roofs. I don't know that that's the case, but, 
but it has that tone to it. So as he, and that's going to matter in a little bit. As he looked out over the city, he's on the roof, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and she was told, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Right? When we, well, that's nice. That's kind of a nice way of referring to him. But the reason I highlighted the daughter and wife is because that translates to this. The servant goes out. You know, who is that woman? Go find out who that woman is, the king says. So he goes out, and he's going, David wants me to check on a woman. Okay. Okay, who is here? She, okay. And he comes back, and he, what's, she's Bathsheba. Uh, David, she's someone's daughter. David, she's someone's wife. Right? You need to know that, that she's someone's daughter and someone's wife. I don't know what you're thinking, but, and he can't say that to the king out loud, so he just tells her exactly who he, this is someone's daughter, this is someone's wife. That's how we should be thinking about, about women. This is someone's daughter. It has huge implications. Then David sent messengers to go get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. And she returned home. Right? So this, this thing takes place. What, you, what I didn't tell you yet is that um, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. David knew who he was. David knew who he was. And it, one of the mighty men. And her father was one of his mighty men. Like there's like 30 of them. He knows who these people are. I don't know that he knew for sure his wife, but he knew Uriah, and he still did this. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message, you know, a little note like junior high, middle school, right? folds it up, gives it. David gets the message, opens it up, and there's just two words, I'm pregnant. Have you been there? Can you feel your heart sink? Can you hear the, oh, no. It was just supposed to be one night. She's pregnant. And all the weight of all, everything is on his shoulders. And he's starting to deal with that. So here's what David does. We're not going to read all through the text. It says, David orders Uriah to come home. Right? One of my muddy men, come home. I want to honor you. He comes home and he goes, oh, awesome to see you. I've got a gift for you. And, and by the way, go home. Be with your wife. Have supper. Good for you. And Uriah won't do it. Instead, he, he sleeps somewhere else. He won't go to his home. And, and David gets the report because he's got people watching him. And the report is he didn't go home. He wasn't with his wife. And David brings Uriah before him and says, what's wrong with you? I bring you back. I give you this night. You, you don't even go be with your wife. And Uriah replies, the ark right, the symbol of God's presence, and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and there's no no, um, place for the ark yet. It hasn't been built. The temple hasn't been built yet, right? The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. He's got all this character just eat, oozing out of his body. I would never do that. I, I couldn't do that when, when the war is over, when everybody comes home, we can all be with our wives. That's what I'll do. But I'm not going to take advantage of this, David. So David does the most logical thing. He, he gets Uriah drunk, right? Because then you lower your inhibitions. He feeds him, drinks him drunk, and he sends him that night. Now, go be with your wife, you know? <laughs> he pushes him out the door, and he stumbles around, but he doesn't go home again. 
And, and even though David has ordered Uriah home, he won't partake of the, of the rights of a marriage. He doesn't do it. And so David's still stuck with this woman who's pregnant. And, and Uriah's going to know that Uriah is not the father. So then David comes up with a new scheme. He sends Uriah to the, back to the war and to the front line. And he said, now what I want you to do, not to Uriah, he said this to his commander, take Uriah up to where the battle is the fiercest. And fight, 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 fight. And then on the count of three, have everybody except Uriah take three steps backwards, leaving him completely exposed to die. And that's exactly what they did. And Uriah died. In other words, David ordered Uriah's death, which to me is David murdered Uriah. He arranged for his death. And, and so now Uriah's gone, and the problem is solved, and David thinks he's in the clear, right? Because now, now she's pregnant. So, so she grieves, Bathsheba grieves, and then David calls for her, and they get married, and now Bathsheba is his wife and can have the child. Here's what I want you to catch. David was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. Right? He wasn't where he was supposed to be, and he wasn't doing the things he was supposed to do. We've all been there. We've all been in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And when we get there, at least for David, when he did it, he went from biblical hero to super disturbing biblical hero. Can you imagine when it came out, and eventually it all comes out, you know, God arranged for this specific, we're not going to go into the, to Nathan's uh, confrontation of David, but when it all comes out and the scandal, you know, Bathsheba Gate is on the, on the front page, and all the details are there from the reporters. Can you imagine how the nation felt? Really? This is our biblical hero? Really? This is the guy who took down Goliath because, you know, Goliath was insulting God? And he does this? I'm cringing. This is super disturbing. And you'd lose faith in your, in your leader. Right? In fact, let me just go through the consequences. Afterwards, even though David was close to God and experienced forgiveness, which he did, the child dies. And I'm not going to try to explain that. That was God's choice. I don't have anything else to say. Right? His image as a king. Really, David? You're our king? You're the guy? Right? The respect of his children fell. In fact, it fell so low that it disrupted his whole family as far as the unity goes. That's the day David lost his family, even the ones that weren't born yet. Right? Absalom was probably the most. He fought against David. He actually set a tent up on a roof and took David's wives and had sexual intercourse with them on a rooftop in full display. Right? Well, why did he do, do you think that was a statement? Do you think that was like, hey, remember the rooftop, David? And it was kind of an in-your-face kind of moment. And all of that took place because of what David did. Because he was in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And what I want you to catch this morning is it all started with a look, only it's probably not the look that you're thinking of. Because what most of us think is, okay, so David was taking a nap, he got out of bed, he went up the rooftop, and he took a look at the city, and he just happened to see a beautiful woman. Well, can you blame him? I mean, you kind of go, well, she really is. Wow, she's gorgeous. And then one thing leads to the next. I don't think that's what happened, and this is where I'm getting beyond Scripture just a little bit. I think David had a habit. I think David was a dabbler. I think David stayed back on purpose. I think he wanted to do what he wanted to do and he wanted to do it in private and he didn't want his army around. He didn't want to go with them. And I think he had a habit of taking the walks on the rooftops and I think when he was looking around, 
It was not accidental that he saw Bathsheba. Can I prove that? No. But it reads just like, come on, what a coincidence he sees Bathsheba, right? So I think he's dabbling. Now, when I say dabbling, what do I mean? Well, if you look up in the dictionary, it basically says this. It's to immerse a little bit, to wade in and splash around. Ducks are dabblers, right? They go into the shallow water and they do that kind of stuff. I knew you liked my duck imitation. And uh, you could do it, yeah. And, uh, or it's to take part in activity in a casual or superficial way. You know, like, hey, do you go to church? Well, I dabble in a little bit. You know, I go once in a while. You know, I'm a dabbler, a church dabbler. Okay. And other people go, hey, do you worship Satan? Well, I dabble in the occult a little bit. No, no. Right? That's what dabbling means. It doesn't mean you're fully immersed and fully devoted. It means you're dabbling a little. You're in the shallow part of, of the pool. And here's how you recognize dabbling. Dabbling always begins, when people talk about it, with the word just. Right? And dabbling can always be excused as not that big a deal. I'm just, I'm just dabbling in it. You know, I just a little bit, you know. Come on, it was just a walk. It was just a walk. I was, I was just, I just stayed back from the spring this year. That's all I did. And, and that's how you, when you hear those words, by the way, parents, listen to your kids. Because that's called minimization. I just did this. I just, and we all do it. And if you're in, and by the way, guys, this is not for those of you from Teen Challenge, it will apply to you, but it's for our church. Um, because there's lots of us in the same boat. If you're in the recovery community, if you've been through that kind of stuff, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because all of us are just people. We just did this little thing. And it means we just think, I just dabbled a little bit, and that's not that big a deal. It's okay. Come on. And dabbling is difficult to recognize because we're lying to ourselves. And dabbling is difficult to confront because we have all our excuses lined up, right? I mean, you know, David... Goes up to the rooftop, says, what are you doing on the rooftop? Oh, I'm just looking around. Just, just looking. Nothing. And it looks perfectly innocent, but it wasn't perfectly innocent. Now, we're going to switch gears just a little bit because to understand the power of dabbling and understand this message, we have to do a little bit of, of, of heavy lifting on the theology of sin. Right? Doesn't that sound like an exciting topic? Who would go? That's why I didn't name the message, hey, come to church, and we're going to talk about the theology of sin. You wouldn't be here. Um, <laughs> So here's how I used to think about sin when I was a kid. When I was a kid, um, my parents made up the rules. How awful of them, (laughs) right? Some of the rules to me made sense, and some I thought were just dumb. You know why I thought they were dumb? Because they were dumb. I mean, some of them were dumb, but they didn't make sense to me at least. I didn't understand them. They were, were, whatever was in there, I just thought they were arbitrary, Right, And here's the thing, when I experienced my life and was living with these rules from my parents over me, if I broke the rules, the danger was getting punished by my parents, not the consequences of breaking the rules. Right? I didn't think there were any consequences. So if I stayed out till 10.45 and didn't get home at 10.30 and, you know, on, a, on a school night or a weekend, <laughs> it didn't really matter when it was, uh, I would turn to my friends and look at my watch and I would say, my parents are going to kill me. And they weren't ever going to kill me. But my fear was the consequences from them. Because I didn't think there were any consequences for 15, it was just 15 minutes. It was just a little break of their rules, right? So what were the consequences? And I thought that, that my parents were making the rules for their convenience not for my welfare. And when it came to 
uh, what time to be back at home? I'm almost sure I was right about that. I think it was for their convenience. Hey, Doug, we want you at home at 9.30 tonight. Why? Because we're tired. <laughs> right? It's not about you. It's about us. We want to get our sleep. And if you're out doing stuff, we're never going to get our sleep. So, but, but I thought all the rules were just arbitrary ones that they made up for their convenience. And what I failed to realize is that my parents had my best in mind the whole time. Even though they said they loved me, they didn't, I didn't connect the rules to their love. I connected rules to, to rules. Who wants rules? Right? Well, why, why is this important? Because I was doing the same thing to God. All the things that we call sin, you know, we go, we're violating God's rules, that's sin. Right? I, I just thought they were arbitrary. That God goes, yeah, hey, and don't do this too. <laughs> don't do that. Why? Because I said so. Right, kind of a rule, arbitrary maker, I, and I didn't realize that my parents were actually worried about me. These rules were connected to my safety. They were connected to my character. Who I was going to become would be determined by the kind of life I lived and the kind of experiences I had. So they were protecting me from certain kinds of things. I did it anyway, but I still they tried to protect me from it. My identity, because if I hung out with the wrong people all the time, I would start to think of myself differently. My self-esteem might go down. My understanding of who I really am, what I was made for, my whole identity could change depending on what I did and how I lived. So they had rules to help protect me from that. My future is at stake. Because if I would have just done what I wanted to do, my grades would have gone way down. I wouldn't have shown up for a lot of things. If I would have done what I wanted to do, instead they had rules, really invasive things like go to school, <laughs> you know, and study hard and do your homework. Wow, it's terrible. I was oppressed. And... Um, and then they had rules about relationships. They wanted me to have healthy relationships with people who would build me up, not tear me down. Right? Because why? Why did they want all those things for me? I noticed something. They never had any of those rules for the neighbor's kids. <laughs> really, they never did. They never told the other neighbor, hey, you should not stay out with those guys. They minded their own business because they didn't love the neighbor kids. <laughs> they didn't pay for their college education either. Right? They loved me, and they got me through college. And then the well dried up. But anyway, they loved me. <laughs> they, they, and everything they did with me, everything my parents did, except for the human part of frustration sometimes, came from a place of love. But even their frustration was because they loved me, because they were never frustrated with the neighbor's kids. They didn't care. But they cared about me. So... Why does God have all these rules? Why is there sin? Why does it exist? It's not because God's going up there and going, you know what? I want to make them miserable. Let's make all these rules. I'm a dictator. I'm God. They're not. No, it's because our identity. We're his kids. Because he loves us. And sin always damages something. Right? Sin is kryptonite. And dabbling is just a little bit of sin. At least we think it's just a little bit. Right? Sin is our kryptonite. It kills us. It hurts us. It hurts our relationship with God. It hurts our relationship with each other. It destroys our identity, our abilities to make a difference in the world. And it, it, it doesn't please God. It hurts our great purpose. Right? So this is why, why we have to catch ourselves fast and quit making excuses for ourselves. And this is why, I know it sounds old-fashioned, I take sin seriously because even the dabbling is there. And the dabbling has a problem because of where it takes us. And it always takes us somewhere. 
some were more, some were deeper, some were, some were worse. Oh, it's just a little bit of dabbling. We don't connect the harm, but it's the road to somewhere. So now I'm going to take you to another, well, excuse me, let me take you to 1 John 4, 9, and 10 just to show you in, in print this God's love part. So here's what it says, verse 9. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And it's not just through him. It's with him. So we can be part of an eternal community, an eternal family together. That's God's invitation to every single person. If you, if you haven't said yes to that one, that's where you need to start thinking. You know, what do I think about this guy? Do I really want to be a part of that? Do I want this forgiveness that Doug talked about? Everything I've been talking about so far is really for those people who have already said yes because, hey, if you don't believe in God, who cares? What rules? What sin? What does it matter? And it goes on and says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, because we didn't, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sin. So in the theology of sin, you need to know no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what kind of dirt is underneath your fingernails, no matter what you've ingested or inhaled or what you've said or who you've hurt, it's paid for. The power of sin has been defeated on the cross and, it, and your sins don't require any more of Christ's blood than my sins do. It's all equal. It's the power of sin. It's not the number of sins. It's the power of sin. It's not the kind of sin. The power of sin has been destroyed and the price has been paid and now we can have that relationship with God and everything that God has done, including when he reveals to us our sin, it's motivated by love. I want you to know what you've done wrong so, you, so we can be right again, God says, and so you can live a new life. So you can change your ways and become the person you were meant to be. And I was thinking, this is, I know this is going to be a silly thought, but I was thinking, if, if you were Superboy's parents, wouldn't you make a rule about playing with kryptonite? <laughs> well, but it's shiny. No, I know, but I like the green. Yeah, I know it's green. It's really pretty, isn't it? Yeah, it's really pretty. Right? And it's just a little bit. It's just a tiny little bit of kryptonite. Yeah, but you don't understand, son. This is who you are, and these are the things that hurt you, and you cannot have the kryptonite. Too bad, super boy. All right? I mean, I, just, I know it's silly, but, but you would make rules, and that's exactly what my parents did for me, and that's exactly what God does for us, and that's why it's important. Dabbling is kryptonite. It's not just dabbling. It is kryptonite. It's not just a little bit. It just feels like a little bit. It's kryptonite. Dabbling is progressive. It takes us somewhere. It always goes the next place. And I want to show you that because Solomon, who is David's son, wrote Proverbs. And in chapter 7, he, he's going to reveal to us this progressive nature of, of dabbling. And here's what he says. He says, follow my advice, my son. And this applies to women too. He's just writing sort of a masculine approach. My, my advice, my son. Always treasure my commands. Obey my commands and live. This is Solomon writing. It's not the voice of God. It's his voice. Guard my instructions as you guard your own eyes. He's the voice of wisdom here. Tie them on your fingers as a reminder. Write them deep within your heart. What's he saying when he writes all that stuff right at the beginning? He's kind of saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. Listen to me. Listen to me. Let me coach you just a little bit. I'm going to give you something really, really important here. Pay, pay attention now. Right? And he goes on in the next two chapters to talk about two women. Okay? And, and you need to know that these women represent something. They... And it's not like a slam on women. In fact, one of the women in Proverbs 8, the next chapter we're not going to read, but you can go read on your own, represents wisdom and all that's good and virtue. The other woman represents sin and immorality, and she's, she's pictured as a prostitute. 
or at least a woman with of, of low moral fiber. Okay, and you'll get that when we read it. So here's what he says. Love wisdom like a sister, like a woman, like a sister. Uh, make insight a beloved member of your family. Okay, and he's really just giving you a hint of what's coming in chapter 8. Reach out for wisdom and quit being a fool is what he's saying. Hold wisdom close. Keep it with you all the time. And he said, let them protect you from an affair with an immoral woman. And it's, not, it's not about the sex. Sex is just one example, right? It's about sin is what he's saying here. And the woman is representing something much bigger than just a woman, but it's going to sound like just a story about a woman. With an immoral woman from listening to the flattery of a promiscuous woman. While I was at the window, and I was going to tell a story, while I was at the window of my house looking through the curtain, I saw some naive young man. Okay, that means foolish young men. Men without enough intelligence. There's other words, but some people don't say them in their house with their children. It starts with an S and it ends with a D. Stupid. And, uh, <laughs> and I probably am. Anyway, looking through, I saw some naive young men. One in particular who lacked common sense. Wouldn't you hate to be that guy? It's like, hey, I'm hanging out with a bunch of fools, but I get picked out for being really not so smart, right? So there's one guy who's really not so smart. He's special, right? He was crossing the street near the house of an immoral woman. He's getting, goes across the street, he's getting close to what represents sin, right? Strolling down the path by her house. And I thought to myself, if you, if you were there and you interrupted him right then, you go, hey, kid, what you doing? What would he say? I'm just on a walk. I'm just on a walk. I'm just thinking. I just got to clear my head a little bit. I'm just, I'm only, all that stuff would come out, right? Because he knows exactly where he is. He knows exactly where he's going, but it looks like he's innocent. Right? I know where I'm doing. I'm just on a walk. I was just thinking, but it was twilight. Now it's time of day. In the evening, as deep darkness fell, what's that mean? It means he thinks no one's watching. It means he's hidden. No one's going to know about this. He forgets that God is with him all the time. Forgets that God sees everything because he thinks darkness is going to cover this up. So then he's out there and he's in the right place, right time at, at evening. The woman approached him, seductively dressed and sly of heart. Okay? That's not about women. That's about the attractiveness of sin. And how it cloaks itself. Don't walk out. Ladies, do not walk out of here thinking it's the woman's fault. That's not what I'm saying. It's just representing sin. And seduct- sin dresses seductively. She was the brash, rebellious type, never content to stay at home. Sin is everywhere. She is often in the streets, in the market, soliciting at every corner. And if you, if you go, isn't that true of evil? Isn't that true of temptation? It's everywhere. And by the way, we don't talk a lot about this, but there's an enemy behind all that who wants you to be seduced by evil. She threw her arms around him, kissed him, and with a brazen look she said, I've just made my peace offerings and fulfilled my vows. You know what that is? That's religion. I've just been religious. I got that out of the way. I just went to church. I had confession. I check, check, check. Now I can do what I want to do again. I'll go back to confession tomorrow. Right? Or I'll say my prayers before I go to bed. But in the meantime, in the meantime, so I'm done with the religious stuff, and now I find you. You're the one I was looking for. Right? I love that. No, she wasn't. She was looking for every single one. And any guy that she found, 
Oh, you're the one I was looking for. You know what you are? You're the stupidest guy in the world, and you're right here. You know, I'm just good to be with you. So I was, you were, I was looking for you. I came out to find you. You. I came out to find you. And here you are. Oh, you're so special. Right? And I was thinking, what a coincidence. I was just on a walk. <laughs> you know you're laughing at you, right? <laughs> just so we're clear. All right? And me. You're laughing at me. But you always laugh at me. But this time you're laughing at you, too. All right, so... My bed is spread with beautiful blankets and colored sheets of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon, just like all of us do at our houses, right? (laughs) Come, let's drink our fill of love until morning. Let's enjoy each other's caresses. By the way, this is with sin, right? It's not the sex thing. It's the sin thing. For my husband is not home. I have no accountability. He's away on a long trip. He'll never know. He's taken a wallet full of money with him. So that's how I know he's not coming back until later this month. Right? He took the money, all right? So here's the point. We can keep this a secret. No one's going to know it's dark out. Come on, let's, let's dabble. Right? You came down here. Wait, come on, walk. You were looking for me too, right? Oh, yeah, I was. So she seduced him with her pretty speech. And she, evil, enticed him with her flattery. And he followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. Last night, I don't know why this happened, but the S wasn't there. It changes the meaning a lot. (laughs) On the word slaughter? (laughs) Like an ox going to the laughter. No. (laughs) So I put the S back in there so we'd be clear about this. He followed her at once like an ox going to the slaughter. You know what an ox going to the slaughter thinks he's going to? Lunch. Right? Come on in this room. We got some extra hate here. And then he's killed. And this is exactly the same. He thinks he's going to something that's going to be fun and great, but it's going to kill him. He was like a stag caught in a trap, awaiting for the arrow that would pierce his heart. His heart. We don't hunt like that anymore, but they'd catch the stag. Then they would be suffering there, and then they would put it down. And in that meantime, I'm caught. And then they'd give him the death blow. Right? He was like a bird flying into a snare, little knowing that it would cost him his life. He is clueless but what i want you to catch right in this story and david on that rooftop he wanted it to happen it's why they went for the walk it's why they went where they went and the whole this little dabbling is hoping hoping for a little bit more another taste a little bit and it's leading somewhere to the to the failure right and my and my, my mom would say doug don't stand so close to the edge you're just asking for it. You're going to fall. You're going to get hurt. Don't stand so close to the edge. And I, remember, dabbling always begins with just a little, a just a little bit. The word just will come up over and over. You have to catch yourself. I have to catch myself doing it. We will make excuses and they'll be handy. And we are experts at it, at rationalizing and minimizing our stuff because we want what we want. We all do. Dabbling always begins with the word just and dabbling is kryptonite and when we get involved in it i'm going to tell you the fallout when we get involved in it it always results in the same things our relationship with god takes a hit not our forgiveness but it gets real hard to pray it gets real hard to read the bible it gets real hard to walk forward in your in your relationship with god when you know that you're dabbling because you know it and you know how else you know you're dabbling it's when you pretend god's not in the room it's when i pretend god's not in the room 
But this darkness, God won't see. He's right there. That's why we talked last week about living in the presence of God all the time. It will help you, right? And then your self-respect, who am I? And Satan will whisper in your ear, and he really will. He'll say, this is unforgivable. You call yourself a Christian. I can't believe you think you're forgiven. How could God love a person like you? You are a dabbler. And you're worse than a dabbler because you know you're dabbling and you won't walk away from it. And you're doing just a little bit and you're making excuses inside your heart. is getting beat. And your, your experiential relationship with God gets more and more distant. And so does mine. I'm not telling you stuff I don't know from experience. And then your influence takes a hit. How could David lead the people after Bathsheba? How could his kids respect him? It tore him apart. It wrecked everything. It killed the kingdom. And when, when we, those of us who are following Christ, when we, it's not when we're found out, it's when we're doing those things, when we make those compromises and don't deal with them honestly and publicly and clearly, they'll come back and they will take away what we, we usually use the word testimony. We could use the word reputation. We could use the word your ability to influence and to be a part of what God is doing in this world. It takes a huge hit because people go, really, you? You're the one? You, you going to tell me about Jesus? I saw you Friday night. I saw what you were doing. You know? And even if they don't know, you know. And so your confidence, is, is, it just it, it hurts your identity it stops you from being able to use your gifts and abilities properly, and it interferes with what your greater purpose is, what you were created for. All right, so what do we do? Well, here's the first one. We've got to recognize it, and we've got to own it. We've got to quit saying just. You know, if, if, if I'm a person who exaggerates stories to make myself look better, I've got to own it and go, hey, you know what? Sometimes in a story, I'll lie to make myself look good. I am a liar. I have a habit of doing it. It's, it's wrong. It's lying. And I got to deal with that. That's a very subtle thing, but hard to get a hold of. You could choose more obvious things. I'll let you go through that in your own inventory of, of, of what might be for you. But whatever it is, you have to recognize and own it. You got to own it with God. God, this is who I am and what I'm doing. Not like you don't know, but I want you to know that I know finally. And I'm going to deal with it. And you got to tell, this is, sorry, I'm just going to go there. You can't keep it a secret from the world. You've got to tell at least someone you trust who will pray for you, love you, coach you. Not someone who's doing it too, who's going to, ah, it's not that big. Don't get someone who's going to go, well, it's just. Don't, you know, they feed you the line you want to hear anyway. Don't go for that person. Go for someone who will tell you the truth. They bring you out of the snare off so you don't get slaughtered or laughter, I guess. Just recognize and own it. Secondly, you've got to understand it. This is where the recovery community does so many favors for people because they go, it's not just important for you to own it. It's important for you to know why you're doing what you're doing. When are you at risk? What, are you, what hole are you trying to fill? What hole am I trying to fill? Right? If I don't understand, how can I, how can I fix it? How can I do something different? I'm so habitual in things I do. I have to change my habits, so I better understand what I'm getting from it and own it and then look where am I going to fill that some other way. And the last one is, you've got to create a strategy for safety. How are you going to change if you don't have a new strategy? If you don't do things differently? If you don't fill the hole some other way, how are you going to do things differently in the future? You know, if this was your kid near the edge, and he said, yeah, I'm an edge stander. I can't help it. You know, I get closer and closer. I just dabble a little bit, and then next thing I know, I'm right at the edge. And you're the parent of this little edgy kid. What are you going to do? I bet you're going to make a rule. What will the rule be? 
Don't let go of my hand. That's very inconvenient. I think I'd put up a fence to keep my kids safe. I think I'd draw a line and go, you go past here, you're going to be in big trouble. Right? Because I want to put the fear of me into them. Right? You do something to keep them back. We have to do, when you're an adult, you've got to do that yourself. When you're an adult, you've got to go, so what are my new rules? Well, how am I going to keep myself safe? How am I not going to do, how am I going to stay away from this dabbling thing? How am I going to bring that to light? And let me tell you the times when you're going to be most at risk. It's when you're depressed. It's when you're feeling sorry for, when I feel sorry for myself, I deserve more than this. No one pays attention to me. No one really, all that kind of garbage. That's when I'm in, I'm most hungry to feel better. I'll go to something, dabble somewhere, right? When I'm just on a walk, you need to answer this question for yourself. Where do my walks take me? So everybody in the room right now, between you and God, where are you most likely to dabble today? When, when you think you're alone and nobody else is seen, when you think darkness will cover it, where will you go? And if the answer is, I don't know, and I, I have nothing, good for you. That's awesome. But a lot of us know. A lot of us know. I have to avoid leading myself into temptation. Because when I go on my little, just, just my walks, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I can pray, you know, the Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation. Don't let me get into temptation, but I lead myself there. Right? I have to avoid that. I have to figure out how to avoid that. So what do we do? Instead of dabbling in the bad stuff, I want to suggest we go all in on the good stuff. Right? Well, what's the good stuff? Well, Jesus said it was to love God with all your heart, soul, strength. Get right with God. Pursue God. Learn about God. Invest in that relationship. Love other people. That's what he said too. Just as much as you love God, you've got to love other people. Invest in them. Care for them. The weak, the needy, but to have some really good, healthy friendships. And then live on purpose with purpose. Make Find what your great purpose is. For me, for me, it's to please God and to honor God. Right? But it comes from Ephesians 5. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord and devote yourself to that. Take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Don't dabble. That's the point there. Instead, expose them. Not other people's, your own. Anytime you see yourself dabbling, expose it. Own it. Right? Last thing, and then we're going to sing a song and we'll be done. Right? If God loves me, if God loves me and wants my very best, right? That's what I told you about God today. Like my parents, God loves me, wants my very best. Pay no attention to the little people in the back of the stage. Pay attention to me, all right? <laughs> if God loves me and wants my very best, every time I dabble, it really means I don't trust him, right? If you're doing something in your life that you know doesn't hold up to the light of what God says is right, what God says is wise, and you do it your way, and I do it my way. It means, God, in this matter, I mean, I appreciate you, God. I really like that forgiveness thing. That's awesome. But I don't trust you about this. My money, my dating, my sex life, my kids, my future, whatever I'm doing, my dabbling, I don't trust that your ways are better than that you really want my best because I think this will make me happy, and that's why I'm doing it. And I'm saying, come on, come on, come on. Let's trust God. Let's, let's reach out for his very best. The song we're about to sing is um, really about 
trusting and redevoting ourselves to him. Let's stop. Let's pray. God, you are good. On today's point, isn't that we are bad. It's really a reminder that we need you. We need to have that forgiveness, that relationship. Every single one of us has proven that we're, we're too foolish to guide our own lives. We keep making wrong choices and wandering on streets, just going for walks. We need you. God, help us to catch ourselves when we're walking away from you and towards shiny kryptonite. Help us to catch ourselves saying just. And God, fill us up. Fill us up with love, trust. Help us to know who we are, what our purpose really is, and help us to use all the things that we have to be a part of that. Because that's where, that's where that rich life that you offer us is found. And God, help us to care for each other, pray for each other, and be a family. Your family. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, everybody, thanks for uh, being here. You're invited back next week. We'll do another Kryptonite. It's called The Couch.